Insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcasts. Welcome to ASA Central Line, the official podcast series of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, edited by Dr. Adam Stryker. Welcome back. This is Central Line, and I'm Dr. Adam Stryker, your host and editor. Today's topic is non-operating room anesthesia, or as is commonly known, NORA or NORA. We know that hospitals face great burdens on perioperative resources, and one way they are responding to them is by shifting some surgical and procedural needs outside of the operating room. NORA cases are increasingly accounting for a larger percentage of anesthetics administered in the United States. And to help us think through how this is and how it should be working, I'm joined by Dr. Basim Abdelmalik, Professor of Anesthesiology at uh, Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Abdelmalik, thank you for joining us. Hi, Adam. Uh, great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And just for our listeners, this episode is sponsored by GE Healthcare. Although neither myself nor Dr. Abdelmalik have been compensated for this discussion, and this discussion has been independently developed. Let's start, as we often do, with a uh, get to know you question. Dr. Abdelmalik, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your experience with Nora? Uh, absolutely. I practice at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I also served as the president for the Society for Ambulatory Anesthesia, SAMBA. In 2019-2020, during the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, I do a lot of writing and publications speaking on this uh, topic uh, that's near and dear to my heart. My involvement with NORA started with uh, my involvement with establishing the state-of-the-art bronchoscopy suite uh, outside of the operating room, hence the name NORA, uh, where we provide a whole host of advanced diagnostic bronchoscopy as well as therapeutic uh, bronchoscopy. This has been uh, functioning since, I would say, 2010. It's been about 13 years or so. About three operating rooms that are fully equipped as bronchoscopy suite in a hybrid operating room model with a a recovery room space attached to it to provide pre and post uh, procedural uh, services. And I also provide anesthesia services in all other NORA locations around the hospital. As you know, SAMBA is involved in um, and focused on all ambulatory uh, anesthesiology services with all sorts of shapes, including but not limited to outpatient anesthesia, whether it's done in the hospital or the uh, freestanding ASC, and non-operating room anesthesia, as well as office-based uh, anesthesia. So uh, with that, I'm happy to answer uh, some of the questions that you may have. Well, one of the biggest questions that we're going to tackle is how is it to administer anesthesia outside of the operating room and that it oftentimes involves doing more with less. But before we get to that, I think it might be helpful to sort of lay out what we're talking about. I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with Nora, but in case there are those out there that aren't, let's talk about what settings we're talking about and why anesthetic care has evolved into those settings outside the operating room. Uh, great questions. Um NORA refers to providing anesthesia outside the main operating room, but within a given hospital. And that uh, includes many areas like uh, gastroenterology, interventional radiology, bronchoscopy suite, cardiac uh, cath lab, EP lab, MRI, nuclear medicine, PAC, you, may, you name it. And the list is growing by the month. There's also now providing anesthesia services for procedures in ICUs, pain management procedure rooms and such. So these are all the locations where we provide anesthesia outside of the operating room. The old term, if you remember, 
used to be called remote anesthesia. Uh, remote kind of carries some negative uh, feelings attached to it. So hence the name Nora kind of uh, caught on and people start using that term now to describe all services provide the operating room. So there are some folks who like to consider any other service outside the main pavilion operating room, like freestanding ASCs or uh, office-based anesthesia are part of the Nora services. However, I, I believe that that would give this service to all these uh, different services. It's it's better to focus on one item at a time and try to describe the characteristics and concerns and issues and how we can uh, do better in those locations. For example, the uh, the standards and, and the way we provide services in office-based anesthesia are much different than the ambulatory surgery center where the standards are different, the anesthesia machine is different, the facilities are different, the personnel are, are different and so forth. Even patient selection, the one you accept to provide service for an office-based anesthesia is not the same as the one you provide service for at ASC or non-operating room anesthesia, which is a, a NORA location within a hospital. And as you know, the freestanding ACs and office-based anesthesia services are totally 100% outpatient. However, if you look at NORA, it's mostly outpatient, about 70%, but we provide a good number of cases, about 30% or so for inpatients who are higher acuity, uh, are, are very sick, and uh, we, we still provide great care for them in those areas. So issues are different and concerns are different and should be addressed uh, separately. I'm sure there's multiple factors involved in the shift out of the operating room over the years for anesthesiologists. Just briefly, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about those factors? What has happened over the last number of years to account for the shift, whether it's economics, logistics, differences in catering to different patient populations or other physicians' needs? Let's just touch on that briefly, just to, to lay some groundwork. Sure, you're absolutely correct. It's multifactorial. Uh, there has been new advances in the procedures, so many of them now not requiring the full capabilities of the operating room, and some of them require complex and immobile technology that are fixed into those NORA locations. Uh, also, higher-risk patients as the population ages and who are not uh, considered candidate for surgeries in the past now have an option, now have a minimally invasive procedure that can be done uh, safely in NORA. And as you alluded to, economic trends that push for more outpatient versus inpatient services. So all that has led to the uh, movement towards no relocation. Also, uh, we cannot deny that if an area focuses on certain uh, line of service or certain procedures, and they do it day in and day out uh, all the time, that, that there is some value into that where it would improve outcomes and, and help with efficiency as well. So there are, it's a multifactorial Ecology for for moving to Nora. Okay, well, a few minutes ago we did mention that operating in a Nora environment oftentimes is doing more with less, as far as the anesthesiologist is concerned. So let's dive into that a little bit, and but let's start with talking about patient safety. Do you mind outlining what are some key points or aspects of performing anesthesia in the Nora environment that you feel anesthesiologists need to know? as it pertains to uh, performing an anesthetic safely. Absolutely. Uh, you touched on a very important point, which is a hot topic. There, uh, many uh, of the anesthesiology team members do not consider NORA uh, as a uh, desired assignment. Unfortunately, consider as an undesired assignment. The, the, the reason is that uh, they're concerned for patient safety because many of us feel like we do not have what, what we need or what it takes to provide the safest possible care there. 
due to the many facts, like for example, if you retrofit anesthesia service in an area that's originally designed for procedural sedation or procedure under local anesthesia, they are not equipped or not, uh, they were not planning on having anesthesia service there. Now you are trying to retrofit anesthesia machine and some anesthesia supplies and, and medications and equipment and so forth in there. And you may miss one, you miss two, you don't have a way to communicate with your colleagues and such. So it's uh, it becomes an issue when we don't feel uh, that we have what it takes to provide service, but that can be easily overcome by proper planning. So as you retrofit an area, make sure you have a list and we have the the current ASA statement to Nora that give us a list of what kind of equipment that we need to have in there. Uh, and also, if you hear of plan of building or establishing a new location, we got to be involved at the beginning of the uh, blueprint stage where we can decide on the uh, space and the size of the area, how much we're going to uh, use for our equipment, supplies and machines and, and, and electric outlets and, and lighting and so forth. So we need to have what we need to be able to provide that kind of service also, minor things, even like uh, electrical outlets or, or adequate uh, lighting or ability to access uh, the patients, all these are safety features, and most importantly, our monitors. The same level of monitoring, the same standards that we use, the same ASA standard monitors should be also used in non-operating room anesthesia. And as we plan to provide services there, we should pay attention to a lot of other details, like patient selection. Who should we serve there and, and how can we provide that service uh, safely? Uh, other uh, side items, like do we have access to difficult area management equipment? So we should have that available. Uh, looking at what kind of uh, policies in this area uh, that they're utilizing and, and can we uh, move the standard up to what we have in operating room? Code response, should we arrange for case of situation where we have codes, do we have a two-way communication to call for help or take support? Or can we call for the uh, rapid response team within a hospital? So there are many uh, issues that we can address that would help us feel more comfortable and also provide what the means and what it takes to provide safe care in those locations. Well, as is always the case with uh, the demands on anesthesiologists, we're asked to do things in more and more efficient manners. And none of us wants to compromise safety. And as it pertains to Nora, how do we navigate all the items you mentioned along with the demands for increased efficiencies where we don't want to compromise safety in any way? I don't think anybody wants us to, but as experts in patient safety in the hyperacute delivery of medicine, we know that those realities exist. Talk a little bit about what are things we can do to maybe navigate those roadblocks. Oh, absolutely. Start from the beginning, from the start. If we're building a new area, we should try to build it as close to the operating room as possible, if not within the operating room pavilion. That would uh, eliminate a lot of issues that we're talking about in terms of efficiencies and such, and also safety as available additional personnel that can help in case of emergencies. That would be there. If, if that's not feasible and we're building multiple suites, so it's better to have them all located in one uh, area, one big floor, for example, or one big building. So this way we have very close proximity to each other where we can uh, have a better ability to provide uh, and staff those areas uh, with personnel and having available uh, additional hands to uh, help in, in emergencies uh, as well. 
uh, also consider opportunities for uh, system-based triage, what kind of patients we need to get there. So as uh, when you when you put in a patient who is requiring a whole a lot of uh, work to get a case started moving, that would decrease efficiencies in that area. The scheduling is a huge piece of that. Uh, I mean, uh, using block time was thought to be very, very helpful, but it is recommended to, uh, to use a whole day block time versus partial day block time that has been shown to uh, help. Uh, we try to minimize the uh, under over utilization of the block time that has a lot of economic disadvantage attached to all that. Also, it would be helpful to incorporate NORA scheduling within the same scheduling frame uh, that we use in the main hospital operating room. Uh, this way, the anesthesiologist in charge will be able to see what's happening in all locations at the same time. We're able to uh, assign proper personnel to different areas, as you see as the day goes. And we need to work with our colleagues in those areas. We, we, we need to understand how we function, how we schedule our personnel. And to what you you probably see that in your hospital, Adam, that the, the, the schedule sedation cases or local anesthesia cases in between anesthesia cases, that's not uh, appropriate. And that would be detrimental to efficiencies in providing services in, in those uh, areas as well. And uh, uh, what kind of case, what kind of patient schedule, the, the more complex patient probably should be done early in the day versus in the day and so forth to have added the uh, adequate personnel and, and opportunities uh, to take care of those cases uh, versus uh, one a day. So there are many ways and many opportunities uh, that we can do to improve the scheduling. Uh, the, the main thing, and I, I cannot stress that enough, is the geographic uh, footprint of these locations in a hospital. The, the closer we get them all together in, in one area close to the main operating room, the better it is for efficiency and, and, and scheduling and so forth. And, and that should help us be able to provide the service efficiently and also economically. But we have to realize that oftentimes with the best effort, sometimes providing safe care and safe staffing of those areas we might end up having that professional fees for NCR service may not be adequate to cover the cost of providing uh, safe cares. In those situations, we have added that to the revised uh, language and the documents that are being considered right now to replace the NORA statement is to consider having the institutional financial support for those kind of services. As you know, institutions uh, get additional uh, revenues from facility fees and technical fees and such, and they, they should consider contributing to the cost of providing safe anesthesiology care in this area. Well, I do want to talk about that statement, but before we get to that, sure. you had mentioned earlier that oftentimes NORA assignments are not perceived to be good or plum assignments, and the reason for that is because of safety issues. Is there data to show that these environments are indeed less safe, or is that really just a, a perception, not reality? No, there are many outcomes data out there. I mean, uh, for example, data from 12 uh, million patients in the NACOR database, which is the National Anesthesia Clinical Outcome Registry within the uh, Anesthesia Quality Institute at the ASA, looked at those patients uh, and they found that, uh, as we all know, that NORA patients are older and we use MAC uh, anesthesia more commonly than other moods or other forms of anesthesia in those areas. Uh, one of the main findings in that study that showed that while the overall mortality in NORA is less than the operating room, uh, 0.2% versus 0.4%, but if you parcel out uh, cardiology and intervention radiology areas, 
those two areas had higher mortality than uh, the main operating room, which may reflect the acuity or the uh, high-risk patients being taken care of in, the, in those areas, or maybe the more invasive uh, procedures that are being done there. Uh, but more importantly, they also identified that the wrong patient or, or uh, side procedures were higher in NORA than uh, in the main operating room. And if you look at the closed claims trials, uh, it shows some very interesting uh, data there. Uh, they found that uh, respiratory events were higher in NORA than in the main operating room, and about 50% or so of them are preventable by better uh, monitoring. And that data actually did not improve in the most recent closed claim trials. Uh, one thing they identified is that the uh, mortality claims or the claims in the non-operating room anesthesia uh, had higher death and also had higher payout as well. So these are real concerns. Uh, I mean, overall, the numbers are fortunately low, but as you know, one is way too many when it comes to complications like that. And the fact that many of these events are preventable with better monitoring, it tells me that there's a lot more work to be done and we can do better. Uh, Certainly interesting and, and concerning numbers. It seems that that would be an effective tool for heads of anesthesiology groups or organizations to go to the administrators in hospitals and say, hey, these are the these are the facts, and we need some support in making these environments uh, a little safer, a little more efficient, a little more accessible, things like that. But that, that does seem like that would be uh, one, one strong route to pursue. Uh, you're absolutely correct. I could not agree more. Uh, we have the data uh, and we know what's going on there. And uh, that's why I stressed earlier that we need to be sitting at the table as we discuss different areas, as they remodel, as they build, as they retrofit, as they start new service. We need to be there at the beginning to say, well, this is what it takes to provide safe anesthesia care. These are kind of matters we need, these are kind of equipment we need. Uh, and this is how we can provide safe service, how we can help you to provide the, safe, the care that you would like to provide with the highest level of safety that we can provide. We are leaders in patient safety. We're known to be so for decades and, and we have been leading many, many safety initiatives uh, in our own hospital and around the country and in, in medicine in general. And this is part of this one area where we can actually uh, show evidence that we can do that. Well, I have some more questions for you, including circling back to the updated ASA statement on Nora. So um, please stay with me through a short break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Alex Arriaga with the ASA Patient Safety Editorial Board. Perioperative critical event debriefings are important for patient safety and the provider experience. Yet research suggests only a fraction of perioperative critical events are followed by any form of debriefing. The time shortly after a critical event presents a valuable opportunity to reflect, provide feedback, identify systems gaps, and look out for each other's well-being. At a local policy level, there are crisis checklists, emergency manuals, and other tools that can be a starting point to discuss events where debriefing may be most supported. Medical simulation may be a way to generate rare events and facilitate debriefing training in a safe space. Leadership support for a critical event debriefing can improve buy-in. Efforts to improve critical event debriefing practices can benefit the individual, team, and overall health system. For more information on patient safety, visit asahq.org slash patient safety 22. Welcome back. Dr. Abdul Malik, 
you've been involved in updating the ASA statement on Nora, and you mentioned it earlier. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about that and the best practices it proposes? Sure. Um, I had the privilege of leading a, a group of national experts, including many ASA leaders and officers, uh, to revise the ASA statement on Nora. The statement that we currently have has been around for many years and has helped us tremendously in, in establishing our Nora allocation. But with the new advances and expansions, uh, that Nora allocations now account for about uh, close to 50% of all what we do in anesthesiology services. Uh, and all the new uh, procedures and new locations and expansions, uh, the group felt that it is time to revise that statement and to match the current uh, needs. So uh, the one-page document is now uh, into four-page document, covers many items, and is now being considered with the Committee on Procedural and Surgical Anesthesia. Uh, hopefully it will be finalized and our readers will be able to read the full document and it gets posted on the ASA website very soon. Now, we divided up the recommendations into many items, including facilities design and equipment, environment of care, staffing and schedule optimizations, quality and safety, regulatory issues, supporting technology and IT uh, systems, finance and budget, as well as materials management and sterile processing. It's worth looking at when the document comes out. It would really help us as a, a starting point. It's not, it doesn't tell the whole story. Each one of us should adjust the items mentioned there and the recommendations to match their local uh, needs and their community and their hospital and their health system. There are many ways of doing things, but this kind of give us a framework to think about what's necessary, what's needed to provide the highest uh, level of care, the, the safest level of care, if you will, to our patient in those areas. Well, let's talk a little bit about new trends in Nora that you think our listeners should be aware of. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about what insights you have on, on newer trends regarding sure. this, uh, this area? Absolutely. First of all, it's expanding. Uh, if you look at the data, the, the latest data that was published from data from 2014 was published in 2017, showing that Nora, it's close to 40% of what we do. If the trend continued as it was till now, I expect it to be around 50% of what we do. And also the trends are showing that it's higher patient age increased as the years go by and also increased comorbidities as judged by their SA status. And more and more of them are becoming outpatient procedures, about 70% uh, or so. So there's increasing volume, there's increasing patient comorbidities, increasing in age, and also increasing invasiveness. I mean, there are more and more procedures being added to uh, NORA location and NORA services. Uh, I can just give you one example. Uh, many IR departments around the country started to now provide pulmonary thrombectomy for patients who are admitted to our ICUs and uh, with PEs uh, in the uh, IR department. Uh, that's an order service being done there. Uh, there are many new procedures as well being added to bronchoscopy. For example, now there's a robotic bronchoscopy being uh, added and there are many other new advances in, in navigational bronchoscopy and diagnosing uh, lung cancer. And there's even a new technology coming on to not just diagnose lung cancer, but treat lung cancer by ablation therapy and such and, and many other techniques. So there are new technologies, new procedures being added. 
uh, and we need to stay abreast of what's happening in those locations, what, what kind of services we provide there. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Anesthesiologists involved in areas where proceduralists want to introduce a new procedure, whether it's something that hasn't been done before, whether it's increased acuity, what should the anesthesiologist do? What resources are there? What should be done beforehand? That is a great question. First, we need to understand more about the procedure. Let's have a conversation with the procedures who wants to add that procedure. Let's learn a little bit more about it, uh, how it's going to be done, what, what kind of equipment needed for that procedure, what kind of patient population uh, will need or require this kind of procedure to see how we can uh, optimize them and get them better, we can provide patient selection criteria or pre-op evaluation and such uh, for that. We can do uh, literature search. It was in anesthesia literature as well as the procedure-specific literature to learn more about the uh, procedures, see if any other colleagues are doing it around the country. And there are many resources. If we, uh, for example, uh, those coming to the ASA annual meeting, I had the privilege of leading the ambulatory track for the last three years. And I know there are this year, we're having a lot of NORA-focused uh, presentations and, and talks and, and, and such, and also Society for Ambulatory Anesthesia annual meeting is as many sessions focused on NORA. A lot of uh, resources available there for the ASA website, sahq.org, SAMBA website, sambahq.org. Uh, and there are also uh, many publications from our colleagues, and we have published some uh, showing how to address uh, new procedures. Uh, one of one item that I would encourage folks to do is to do a dry run before they start any new procedure, meaning like uh, have a mannequin in a room or something like that and, and talk about uh, how this procedure is going to go, anticipate complications and see how the team is going to respond to it, assign roles when something like that may happen, then you know who's going to respond to what, who's going to call for help, who's going to grab which equipment, who's going to do which intervention. And then also make sure that you have the equipment and the resources needed to address this potential complications from that procedure as well. Uh, we have done that successfully when we introduced a new procedure, for example, robotic bronchoscopy, brought in the robot with a mannequin, and we looked at how that robot gets attached to the airway, the endotracheal tube, and if complications happen, how are we going to gain access to the airway one more time? Who's going to be disconnecting the machine from the airway? And who's going to be moving the equipment out of the way for the anesthesiologist and pulmonologist to gain access and intervene to help with whatever potential complications like pneumothorax or bleeding and such uh, in the airway that we can help uh, with? So uh, these are some strategies that people can use to uh, help uh, start and you introduce a new procedure in, in an area uh, in a safe uh, manner. And sure enough, once we did the dry run and got everybody assigned to roles and, and we made sure that we have the equipment we need to address potential complications, we have been able to provide the service safely for a long time now. Well, before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about the role of anesthesiologists. As we've talked, you've certainly laid out a great case for why it is important that anesthesiologists play a key role in developing and driving future policy measures surrounding NORA practice. Talk to our listeners a little bit about what kinds of policies they should expect to be involved in, they should maybe look to be involved in, and maybe what are some pitfalls that we should be aware of when uh, engaging in that development? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we should look at NORA as if it's a operating room. I mean, we, if you provide service there, uh, it's prudent to follow 
the same safety practices that we follow in the operating room for starting from simple things like patient identification and site identification, as I mentioned earlier, wrong site surgery has been found to be higher in NORA than an operating room. And we have gained great skills and insight on how to prevent that in operating room. We can help our colleagues in those areas to prevent that as well. Uh, patients coming for anesthesia uh, should have also the same standards we have in operating room. For example, we need to write and be responsible for some policies in those areas like MPO guidelines and also uh, recovery criteria. The how, when are we going to discharge this patient? How are we going to recover them? in those areas and training uh, the area nurses of how to recover uh, those patients, how to manage AICDs and pacemakers in that area. And uh, more importantly, patient selection and, and pre-op evaluation, when and where it's gonna be done, is it needed or not, and what kind of items we need to focus on, what specifics for that area for that patient population being served or that procedure uh, being done in, in that area. We have been, again, safety uh, leaders uh, around the country and we need and around the hospitals and we need to continue uh, with our leadership role in those areas. While writing policies is not one of the most desired activities for anesthesiologists, but it is very important uh, because these are the ones that we're going to end up having to follow. And who would be better to write policies related to anesthesiology practice than the uh, the anesthesiologist in charge of that area? And I encourage folks to have leadership uh, assignments in that area from anesthesiology, for, from the procedural side, from nursing side. So those leaders can communicate regularly and frequently to address any issue that may arise this way. We have a point of contact to reach out to when issues arise and resolve it quickly. And that would result in better uh, satisfaction of the teams and better uh, safe care for our patients. Well, Dr. Abdelmalik, really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you for providing such a nice overview on really what is, is such a key component for almost every anesthesiologist, no matter what area you might be practicing in, the idea of uh, practicing a non-operating room anesthesia. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it as well. And to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in again to this episode of Central Line. Please tune in again next time. Take care. Stay ahead of the latest practice and quality advice with ASA Anesthesia Standards and Guidelines, freely available to keep you up to date. Browse now at asahq.org standards and guidelines. Subscribe to Central Line today, wherever you get your podcasts, or visit asahq.org podcasts for more. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com.